All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily, a podcast series by the May 30th Alliance. We are continuing to read Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and we are at the top of page nine. Question. When were you last in Palestine? What impression did your visit leave on you? Angela Davis. I traveled to Palestine in June 2011 with the delegation of indigenous women of, excuse me, with an with a delegation of indigenous and women of color, feminist scholar and activist. The delegation included women who had grown up under South African apartheid and the Jim Crow South and on Indian reservations. Even though we had all been previously involved in Palestine solidarity activism, all of us were utterly shocked by what we saw and we resolved to encourage our constituencies to join the BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and to help intensify the campaign for a free Palestine. Most recently, some of us were involved in the successful passage of a resolution urging participation in the academic and cultural boycott by the American Studies Association. Also, members of the delegation were involved in the passage of a resolution by the Modern Language Association censoring Israel for denying U.S. academics entry to the West Bank in order to teach and do research at Palestinian universities question there are various means of resistance available to people who are oppressed by racist or colonial regimes or foreign occupations that is according to the additional protocol one of the geneva conventions including through the use of armed force nowadays the palestinian solidarity movement has committed itself to the route of nonviolent resistance do you think this alone will end israeli apartheid angela davis Solidarity movements are, of course, by their very nature, nonviolent. In South Africa, even at... Oh, shit. They back out on the motorcycles. All right. Sorry about that. It's the spring, y'all. Solidarity movements are, of course, by their very nature, nonviolent. In South Africa, even as an international solidarity movement was being organized, the ANC... African National Congress and the SACP, South African Communist Party, came to the conclusion that they needed an armed wing of their movement. Umkanto we seize They had every right to make this decision. Likewise, it is up to the Palestinian people to employ the methods they deem most likely to succeed in their struggle. At the same time, it is clear that if Israel is isolated politically and economically, as the BDS campaign is striving to do, Israel could not continue to implement its apartheid practices. If, for example, we in the United States could force the Obama administration to cease its $8 million a day support of Israel, this would go a long way toward pressuring Israel to end the occupation. Question. You are part of a committee for the release of Palestinian political prisoner Marwan Borghadi and all political prisoners. How important is it that they are all released? Angela Davis answers. It is essential that Marwan Bargadi and all political prisoners in Israeli jails are released. Bargadi has spent over two decades behind bars. His predicament reflects the fact that most Palestinian families have had at least one member in prison by the Israeli authorities. There are currently some 5,000 Palestinian prisoners, and we know that since 1967, 800 Palestinians... 40% of the male population have been imprisoned by Israel. 
The demand to free all Palestinian political prisoners is a key ingredient of the demand to end the occupation. Question. You said during a talk at, Bri at Birkbeck University that the Palestine issue needed to become a global one, a social issue that any movement fighting for justice should have on its program or agenda. What did you mean by that? Angela Davis responds. Justice the struggle to end South African apartheid was embraced by people all over the world and was incorporated into many social justice agendas. Solidarity with Palestine must likewise be taken up by organizations and movements involved in progressive causes all over the world. The tendency has been to consider Palestine a separate and unfortunately too often marginal issue. This is precisely the moment to encourage everyone who believes in equality and justice to join the call for a free Palestine. Question. Is the struggle endless? Angela Davis responds. I would say that as our struggle matures, they produce new ideas, new issues, and new terrains on which we engage in the quest for freedom. Like Nelson Mandela, we must be willing to embrace the long walk toward freedom. And that is the end of chapter one of Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. I think that the most illuminating things for me about chapter one both reading it the first time and reading it this second time is the importance that Angela Davis puts on connecting the struggles that are going on in the United States of America with the struggles that are going on in other countries around the world. And not only just, and for me, what I took away from this is not just being informed about those struggles and being educated about those struggles, but also being able to articulate how those struggles are connected to the struggles that we endure here. And I think that one of the things that stands out to me heavily as I read through this is uh, Angela Davis was on a panel. Uh, it's a video on YouTube I watch pretty often. It has Kwame Ture, Angela Davis, uh, uh, and a few uh, multiple other uh, black activists in the 70s. And one of the things Angela Davis said on there that stuck with me was that she was not she was she would not be OK if black people were being oppressed by other black people or if the oppressors were black uh, as opposed to being white. That as much as it was an issue about race, it was also an issue about uh, capitalism and exploitation and oppression and that it was not simply enough to. Uh, get rid of just the white oppressors, but it's uh, important to get rid of oppression in general. And I think that when we can understand the importance of getting rid of oppression, exploitation, subjugation uh, in general for all groups of people who, who deal with it, it, it gets us a step closer to uh, building the type of united front that will be needed to deal with those type of things. I think that Again, I, and I pointed this out on the previous episode where we sit at in current times with the the amount of uh, emphasis that is being put on the evasion in Ukraine by Russia. And when you see the way that Russia has become a pariah, uh, pariah country when it comes to the sanctions that are being levied upon them, when it comes to businesses pulling out of there uh, with pride, other countries are are speaking about the 
quote-unquote economic warfare that they are engaging on Russia. And it's being done based on the fact that they are acting in aggression towards Ukraine. And if this type of action was being done with Israel and the aggression that they enacted on Palestine, if these type of actions were done uh, to America when they enacted in the same type of uh, acts of aggression on uh, other countries, then we would get to a place where there was uh, less war in general, that we didn't have uh, aggressors, these, these different type of aggressors uh, acting in our society and acting in our world as a whole. Uh, and so as long as those as long as it's a double standard for oppression, a double standard for violence, we'll continue to see it uh, being perpetuated. And, and so those are some of the things that I think stand out heavily from that first chapter. Uh, I think another thing that is important to point out in, is some of the terminology that Angela Davis uses throughout this first chapter that I think is important to add to the the lexicon for people who are being involved in uh, movements and struggles and uh, intersectionality, uh, interconnection, uh, black feminism and solidarity are all words that are, are very important when it comes to uh, movement building and when it comes to uh, struggling. And, and so those are some of the my, my main takeaways from the first chapter. You got uh, any main takeaways? All right, I'm not gonna let you. If you're not gonna have no takeaways, I'm just gonna read until you gotta. And then I here. All right, no, I'm just playing. All right, uh, here. I guess we'll start this second chapter, and then we'll have somebody else start reading this one. Uh, all right, chapter two. Ferguson reminds us of the importance of a global context. Question. Following what happened in Ferguson, what is your view of the framework of the new Jim Crow, the book by Michelle Alexander? Michelle Alexander's book on mass incarceration appeared precisely at a moment that represented the peak of organizing against the prison industrial complex. It became a bestseller and it popularized the struggle against mass incarceration against the prison industrial complex in a very important way. Of course, the argument that she makes about mass incarceration reinstituting some of the very stru uh, strictures on civil rights that were fought for during the era of the mid-20th century black movement is very important. Ferguson reminds us that we have to globalize our thinking about these issues. And if I were to be critical, in a friendly way of the text, I would say that what it lacks is a global context and international framework. And she herself points this out, so this is not something about which she is unaware. In many of her talks, she explains that we also need this broader global context to understand the workings of the apparatus that has produced mass incarceration in the United States. Good to see you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me listen. Yeah. Really cool. Thank you. Why do I say that Ferguson reminds us of the importance of a global context? What we saw in the police reaction to the resistance that spontaneously erupted in the aftermath of the killing of Michael Brown was an armed response that revealed the extent to which local police departments have been equipped 
with military arms, military technology, military training. The militarization of the police leads us to think about Israel and the militarization of the police there. If only the images of the police and not of the demonstrators had been shown, one might have assumed that Ferguson was Gaza. I think that it is important to recognize the extent to which, in the aftermath of the advent of the war on terror, police departments all over the U.S. have been equipped with the means to allegedly fight terror. It's very interesting that during the commentary on Ferguson, someone pointed out that the purpose of the police is supposed to be to protect and serve. At least that's their slogan. Soldiers are trained to shoot and shoot to kill. We saw the way in which that manifested itself in Ferguson. And I, I think the the connection to make here is that uh, U.S. imperialism and militarism uh, that uh, has been built up in response to uh, global issues uh, by by way of fear mongering to a great extent has come back around to affect Americans who who back this in uh, what is the extension of uh, militaristic police state that we now have uh, more funding and more equipment uh, poured into policing in the United States that has transformed the police uh, even more so into uh, what appears and is a military force that occupies our communities. I'll let you keep reading though. Uh, and I think one of the other things I want to add or point out is we've seen here in America where there, there's been an overwhelming amount of support for in a, in a comment, a comment, commentary on the bravery of people who are in Russia coming out and protesting and go, taking to the streets to hold demonstrations against the war that is taking place in, uh, in Ukraine that is being perpetuated by Russia. And one of the things that's very interesting about that is that some of the same people who are against people in this country coming out and protesting against the murder of, of people by police the murder, the death of people in custody, uh, those, those people came out specifically just right now speaking about, uh, and Ferguson is, was pointed out by Angela Davis, and if we, speak, if we talk about the uprising that took place around George Floyd, there was uh, a, a lot different of a connotation for people coming out and protesting against that social norm, uh, for people coming out and protesting against the country that is uh, perpetuating those things onto its people. And I think that it's important for us to remember that in a lot of these, in, in all of these different countries, that there are classes of people, there are caste systems of people, and that it is very often and very common that if pe the same reasons people come out in uh, 
in Russia to protest against the aggressions that Russia is committing is the reasons that people come out in America to protest against the aggressions that America is committing. And it is a hypocrisy of the highest order for politicians or for individuals to applaud the bravery of of people in Russia to come out and protest against these things and then to somehow condemn people who come out in America and protest against these things. One of the things that we've seen often as well uh, or regularly as well, too, is people in uh, Ukraine coming out once a city has been sort of occupied by Russian uh, troops or Russian soldiers, they've come out and, and protested and, and demonstrated against those uh, Russian troops for doing those things. And one of the things that is important to remember about this country is that we live on in a country that is that's occupied. We live on a country that the the people who are in the the ruling class in this country are not people who are uh, who can trace their bloodline and their generations uh, back to the beginnings of the people on this land. They are people who trace their bloodlines and their uh, generations on to the people who came and invaded this land uh, with aggression, who came and occupied this land. And uh, forcefully. And if you were to speak to the people in Ukraine right now, they would tell you that the displacement, the refugee crisis, the uh, psychological trauma that they're enduring from this war is not something that they're going to be able to overcome in 10 years or in 50 years or in 100 years or or even in 200 years, uh, depending on uh, the, the level and the, the length that these the breath that this war goes to. And so if those people in current times can tell you that this is something that, uh, you know, if the this. If the earth is still spinning and existing in the way that we know in hundreds of years from now, if they can tell you that these are things that are going to have hundreds of years of damage onto their country, onto their uh, uh, society, onto the to their population, then we have to, in context, look at the damage that has been done uh, by Americanism on the indigenous people of this land for hundreds of years. The dangers and the the the, cat the catastrophe that has been done from Americanism on. Uh, uh, Africans who were brought over here and enslaved for hundreds of years. And if this is something, if we can, in the midst of a war, in the midst of uh, tyranny, in the midst of oppression, say that this is some, what's being done is going to have a reverberating effect for hundreds of years from now, and we have to do something to try to help these people or to stop this from happening, we have to have that same type of empathy and consciousness about groups of people and communities of people who have already dealt with this type of aggression, that have already dealt with this type of tyranny, this type of uh, oppression, uh, specifically here in America that uh, goes to speak to uh, black people, uh, indigenous people, and, and people of color. I lived in London for 10 years, and every time you saw a cop in the street, you got scared. They are technically civil servants, but they do not fulfill this function. You talked about the U.S., the police being militarized. During the demonstrations for Gaza and France and Paris, it wasn't civil servants in the streets. It was riot police. Robocop-looking kind of people. This by itself creates and implies violence. Precisely. That was the whole point. And also, it might be important to point out that the Israeli police have been involved in the training of U.S. police. 
So there, there is this connection between the U.S. military and the Israeli military. And therefore, it means that when we try to organize campaigns in solidarity with Palestine, when we try to challenge the, the Israeli state, it's not simply about focusing our struggles elsewhere in another place. <clears throat> it all also has to do with what happens in U.S. communities. We often talk here about the reproduction of the occupation. What's happening in Palestine is reproduced now in Europe, in the U.S., etc. It is important to make the link for people to understand how, the global, how global the struggle is. But in your opinion, is Ferguson an isolated incident? Absolutely not. It's actually fortunate for those of us who are trying to participate in the building of a mass movement that some recent cases of police killings and vigilante killings have been widely publicized within the country as well as internationally. We had Trayvon Martin, which, of course, was just the tip of an iceberg. Michael Brown is just the tip of an iceberg. These kinds of confrontations and assaults and killings happen all the time, all over the country, in large as well as small cities. This is why it is a mistake to assume that these issues can be resolved on an individual level. It is a mistake to assume that we, all we have to do is guarantee the prosecution of the cop who killed Michael Brown. The major challenge of this period is to infuse a consciousness of the structural character of state violence into the movements that spontaneously arise. I don't know whether we can say yet that there is a movement because movements are organized. But these spontaneous responses, which we know happen over and over again, will soon lead to organizations and a continual movement. All right, and then I think that one of the things that's important to point out about that passage is the 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 idea that just the prosecution of a police officer or just the conviction of a police officer is somehow a blow to the institution of policing is a falsehood. I think that it's important that we advocate for punishment and accountability excuse me responsibility and accountability for uh, police officers who commit individual acts of atrocity but that should be done with the with the goal of trying to get to institutional changes with trying to uh, preach to people the the culpability that the institution has for some of these individual actions and I think that what we have learned in the long history of reform of policing is that it is not simply about punishing an individual police officer for macro or microaggressions. It's about creating an insti creating institutions and organizations and a society that that does not uh, that does not breed the type of mentality that leads to people feeling emboldened enough to have these microaggressions and macroaggressions and i think that the institution of policing as uh, as uh, corrupt as it is and predatory as it is 
Uh, it preys on the type of society that exists. It preys on the type of consciousness that exists. And if we getting rid of that is something that is as is uh, is of the utmost importance as well. And so I just think it's always important when we're speaking about these things, when you speak about how uh, tragic it is that Demetrius Bennett and Mark Barmore and Logan Bell and Carrie Blake and uh, Denzel Duvine and Tyrus Jones have suffered macroaggressions in Rockford, Illinois and in Winnebago County by the law enforcement in this area. It's also important to point out the institutional uh, the institutional flaws and the institutional uh, the institutional reasons that these people have dealt with these uh, individual uh, macroaggressions. And so, again, I just think to, I guess, lastly, to put it, uh, it's important that we have a healthy understanding that getting justice for a single individual is not going to revolutionize an institution. And that was something that I think was put on full display when so many people were in the streets celebrating when Derek Chauvin was convicted for murdering George Floyd. And within hours, uh, young Makia Bryant was shot down and gunned down by a trigger happy police officer. And some of the same people who wanted to see Derek Chauvin imprisoned were finding ways to uh, excuse this police officer coming and murdering this young black girl. And again, it's because of the type of uh, consciousness that exists in a society where uh, violence is is very often the first course of action when it comes to dealing with uh, people of color and people from certain communities. Mm, we at the top of this right here. Question. What does it say about the black civil rights movement that more than 50 years after MLK and Malcolm X, the targeting of black people, Latinos, Latinas, is still happening? Does that mean that the black civil rights movement has failed or that it's a continuous struggle? Angela Davis. The use of state violence against black people, people of color, has its origins in an era long before the civil rights movement and colonization and slavery. During the campaign around Trayvon Martin, it was pointed out that George Zimmerman, a would-be police officer, a vigilante, if you want to use that term, replicated the role of slave patrols. Then as now, the use of armed representatives of the state was complemented by the use of civilians to perform the violence of the state. So we don't have to stop at the era of the civil rights movement. We can recognize that practices that originated with slavery were not resolved by the civil rights movement. We may not experience lynchings and Ku Klux Klan violence in the same way we did earlier, but there is still state violence, police violence, military violence, and to a certain extent, the Ku Klux Klan still exists. Uh, I don't think this means that the civil rights movement was unsuccessful. The civil rights movement was very successful in what it achieved. The legal eradication of racism and the dismantling of the apparatus of segregation. This happened, and we should not underestimate its importance. The problem is that it is often assumed that the eradication of the legal apparatus is equivalent to the abolition of racism. But racism persists in a framework that is far more expansive, far vaster than the legal framework. Economic racism continues to exist. Racism can be discovered at every level in every major institution, including the military, the healthcare system, and the police. It's not easy to eradicate racism that is so deeply entrenched in the structures of our society 
And this is why it's important to develop an analysis that goes beyond an understanding of individual acts of racism. And this is why we need demands that go beyond the prosecution of the individual perpetrators. Question. It reminds us obviously of South Africa, where legally apartheid was ended, but an economic apartheid, even sociological apartheid, is still in place. When we were in Cape Town for the Russell Tribunal, I was shocked to see people of color waiting every morning at the corner of the street to be picked up by employers who deemed to pay them $3 an hour. I was horrified by the ghettos and shanty towns. Shanty towns, excuse me. You drive around the nicest beaches of Cape Town, and a few minutes later, it's like being in Mumbai or something. Well, what's also interesting in South Africa is the fact that many of the, excuse me, Angela Davis. Well, what's also interesting in South Africa is the fact that many of the positions of leadership from which black people were, of course, totally excluded during apartheid are now occupied by black people, including within the police hierarchy. I recently saw a film on the Americana miners who were attacked, injured, and many killed by the police. The miners were black. The police force was black. The provincial head of the police force was a black woman. The national head of the police force is a black woman. Nevertheless, what happened in Marcana was, in many important respects, a reenactment of Sharpville. Racism is so dangerous because it does not necessarily depend on individual actors, but rather is deeply embedded in the apparatus. Question. And once you're in the apparatus, Angela Davis. Yes. And it doesn't matter that a black woman has the national police. The technology, the regimes, the targets are still the same. I fear that if we don't take seriously the ways in which racism is embedded in structures or of institutions, if we assume that there must be an identifiable racist, question, the bad apples type of, Angela Davis, who is the perpetrator, then we won't ever succeed in eradicating racism. And that gets us to about 30 minutes. I think we'll end this episode here. And... I think the one of the main lessons to be taken away. All right, let's try to tie this episode up. Had a little technical difficulty there at the very end of that segment. But I think the number one lesson that I take away from this passage is the importance of the institution being highlighted over the individual and the important of the importance of not simply looking for justice in one situation when it comes to the institution of policing, when it comes to the institution of the prison industrial complex, but looking for wholesale changes, looking. And I think that that's one of the main differences, I believe, when you think about reform and revolution is that reform and reformations are usually dealing with individual uh, incidents or individual policies and uh, revolution deals with the institution as a whole it deals with changing the entirety of something uh, not just one individual or isolated part of something and I think that that's something that is very difficult to uh, sort of wrap your head around the first time that is approached to you I think a lot of times when people begin to be against police terrorism mass incarceration racial injustice they're against one act of racism they're against one act of of police terrorism or police brutality, they may call it, or one act of, against one act of mass incarceration. You'll see somebody who is against somebody being falsely 
convicted, but they're not against somebody being convicted in general. And I think that it's important for people who are taking part in this struggle, people who are taking part in these movements to figure out how to articulate to people the reason to put the changing of the institution over the punishing of an individual. Uh, anything that you want to add on that? Okay, and then we'll wrap this episode up, and then we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily, and we will continue reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. If you have not listened to previous episodes of Rock for Reading Daily, I would encourage you to go back and do so, uh, and I would also encourage you to go and listen to future episodes of Rock for Reading Daily. Uh, if By the time this comes out, there are future episodes out. All right, talk to you tomorrow.